This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The First Amendment protects freedom of religion with two clauses. One is known as the Establishment Clause, and the other one is known as the Free Exercise of Religion Clause. Most of the interpretations of the Supreme Court have focused on the Establishment Clause, but recently more attention has been given to the Free Exercise of Religion Clause by the Supreme Court. This coming January, a case is going to be heard by the Supreme Court that explores the meaning of this clause further, perhaps, though one never knows what the Supreme Court is going to do until it actually does it. The case is Espinosa v. Montana Department of Revenue. The case could resolve a long-standing issue as to whether the infamous Baby Blaine Amendments to the Montana State Constitution and the Constitution of many other states are in fact denials of the free exercise of religion. What are these Baby Blaine Amendments? Why might they be held unconstitutional? And why is something connected to such a small program as the tax credit program in Montana raising such a large question of constitutional principle? To discuss this topic, I have with me today the attorney for Kendra Espinoza, Erica Smith, who works for the Institute of Justice, which takes up many cases that affect the rights of individuals. So, Erica, thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. So let me begin with this question. What are these things, these baby Blaine Amendments? Well, Blaine Amendments are pretty notorious. They exist in over 30 state constitutions. And what they say on their face is that the government cannot aid religious schools. And some of them say not even indirectly. Now this seems kind of innocuous. They're just trying to create separation of church and state. But in reality, they were enacted in the 1800s to discriminate against Catholics and Catholic schooling. At that time, the country was predominantly Protestant, and even the public schools were Protestant. The schools would pray Protestant prayers, read from the Protestant Bible, and read from anti-Catholic textbooks. And that may have been all fine and well until the mid-1800s when you had a wave of Catholic immigrants coming over from Ireland and Italy, and they weren't too happy with this situation in the public schools, and they wanted their own funding for Catholic schools. The Protestants wanted to protect the status quo, so they enacted these provisions specifically to prohibit the Catholic schools from competing with theirs. Well, Mr. Blaine actually proposed an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which was known as the Blaine Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and he nearly got it passed, or he did get it passed by the House of Representatives, and it came within one vote of being enacted, or not quite enacted, sent off to the states for ratification. If they had got one more vote in the Senate, it would have been down to the states to to settle the matter. So um, this was a pretty big political movement in the 19th century. Oh, it was. Uh, Anti-Catholic bigotry was rampant across the country, and that's evident from newspaper articles and the speeches of prominent political figures, um, leaders in the education movement. This was not a secret what these amendments were meant to do. And it's remarkable that it almost passed into our federal constitution. While the federal amendment failed, it inspired 
states to pass their own amendments into the state constitutions. So how many states actually enacted uh, an amendment to their constitution that sort of looks like it could be called the Baby Blaine Amendment? Well, there's a little bit of a debate about this, but the figures come down to 37 or 38 or 39, depending how you count them. So a lot. Yeah, that, that is a lot. And, and one of them was Montana. So what does the Montana Constitution actually say that, uh, what does the Baby Blaine Amendment in, in Montana actually sure. say? So it says that the state or any of its agencies cannot aid directly or indirectly any religious school or religious institution. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, but... Well, I think I have it right in front of my nose here. So I'm going to say any direct or indirect appropriation or payment from any public fund or monies to aid any school controlled in whole or in part by any church, sect, or denomination, the legislature can't, can't fund such a yes. school. And the, the language that they used, sect or denomination, that was code for Catholic. They didn't say any religion because, of course, they wanted Protestantism to stay in their public schools. They only wanted to go after sectarianism, which even the U.S. Supreme Court has recognized is code for Catholic. But this Montana Constitution was actually adopted in the 1970s, about a century later. So how can this be attributed to the anti-Catholicism of the 19th century? That's a great question. So it was readopted in 1972, but initially it was drafted in 1884 when it passed into the Territory Constitution, or what they intended to be the Territory Constitution, and then it was enacted into, when Montana became a state, into the 1889 Constitution. Now, in 1972, when the Montana delegates wanted to draft a new constitution, they used the same exact language, and they even acknowledged, several of them, that it was this provision that was aimed at Catholics, and it was this had this legacy of bigotry behind it. But if you look at the transcript from the convention, the delegates were so afraid to change it because they were afraid to create a public uproar and upset the status quo. So they kept it in the constitution despite its legacy. So they knew what they were doing. Yes. They knew that it was a bigoted, the motives were bigotry. Now, some people say, you know, motives may be, be, be bad, but the law is, is neutral. So do we, can we find something constitutional because of the unconstitutional because of the motives of those who, who drafted it? Well, even if this provision was not motivated by anti-Catholic bigotry, on its face, it's still discriminatory because it singles out religious schools for unequal treatment. The state is fine to aid private schools that are not religious. The only thing they can't aid are religious schools. And as a result, this amendment has been applied in a discriminatory way against children who are uh, attending these religious schools. And that violates the free exercise clause. Now that's interesting. So the program in question here is a tax credit that's worth only 150 bucks. And so uh, I get a bigger federal deduction on my tax and state deduction on my taxes when I contribute money to my local church. So how come I can get deductions and they can't get this tax credit? What, what makes this thing 
different from the ordinary deductions we get for charitable contributions often to religious institutions. Sure, sure. So the Montana Supreme Court has interpreted this Blaine Amendment in a very strict way. And it's interpreted it to say that no money, no, how, no matter how indirect, can ever go to aid a religious institution. And there's about 14 other states that have taken the same interpretation, and they've used it to stop school choice programs in their tracks. So is it because it's a tax credit that they get a full refund of the $150 if, if the Montana citizen gives $150 to this scholarship foundation that's giving money to Miss Espinosa to go to a religious schools? Is it because they're getting a full reimbursement of $150 for every contribution of that size? That is that what they, what the, what the court found uh, uh, key to their decision? It, it seems that way. Really, anything that the court interprets to be government funds, no matter how indirect, including a 100% tax credit, is going to be on the table here. So probably not a. Um, tax deduction, where the tax uh, payer is not going to get 100% of their money back, but yes, tax credits. So could this U.S. Supreme Court just say, well, they applied this Montana constitutional provision incorrectly, and then just say, actually, this tax credit program is not directly or indirectly funding uh, religious schools, or aren't they able to do that? They probably cannot do that because the Montana Supreme Court is the final authority on interpreting its own constitution. So the only thing that the Supreme Court can really do here is decide whether that interpretation and application of that provision runs afoul of the federal constitution. And we argue, of course, that it does. Well, tell me a little bit about your client, Kendra Espinosa. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to meet her. I think I'm going to meet her later today. Uh, just exactly why was she uh, willing to participate in this litigation? Kendra is a very brave woman, and when she signed up to be the lead plaintiff in this lawsuit, I don't think she had any idea that she was about to become the face of the most important education case in 20 years. But she very much believes in this cause, and she has persisted, even though she hates being in the limelight. She's a really remarkable person. She wants to use these scholarships to keep her children in Stillwater Christian School, where her children are currently flourishing. And she's been working two to three jobs just to make ends meet. She has a nine to five in an office, and then she often works cleaning houses or doing janitorial work on the side just to make these tuition payments. She shouldn't have to do that just to ensure that her children have a good education. So why did the Supreme Court take this case? I mean, I know you handled a lot of the preparatory work that had to convince them to take the case. What were the arguments that you presented them? Uh, you know, they only take about 100 cases. I know you know that. and. And there's, you know, a million out there that they, they choose from among. So how does this particular case get picked out for uh, careful scrutiny by the uh, justices of the Supreme Court? Well, what the Supreme Court looks at when they're considering whether to take a case is whether there's been a longstanding circuit split or dispute about this issue. And here there has. For decades, the lower courts have been disagreeing about this. Some say it's perfectly constitutional to exclude religious options from student aid programs. 
and the other half has come out the other way. So the Supreme Court wants to step in to resolve this. Uh, it's also been a big issue in state legislatures. There's a lot of legislators that have wanted to pass these programs but feel they can't because they don't want to violate one of these Blaine amendments. So the Supreme Court feels like there's enough need for them to step in and finally resolve the issue. Well, so are you optimistic? I'm very optimistic. Uh, I mean, there's almost certainly four votes uh, against this. If you look at the pattern of voting on the Supreme Court, uh, the Zellman case was a five to four decision and that was involving vouchers in, in Cleveland. And I think the Institute for Justice was involved in, in that. Uh, we did. We represented the parents in that case. So you won that one, and Sandra Day O'Connor provided the key vote there, I think. But um, but the court has changed uh, since then, and it's not, it's not always the case that the five more conservative members of the court hang together. Um, and Justice Roberts seems to be reluctant to get into controversy. So, is there? Are you? Could they possibly duck this case in some way, decided on some other grounds that avoid getting to the heart of the matter? In this particular case, it's going to be difficult for them to do that. I think they took it for a reason. Uh, you're right; only four justices need to vote to take a case. But I think we do have those five votes. Uh, if you look at the two key cases on this issue, the Lockby Davy case and the Trinity Lutheran case that just came out two years ago, both strongly indicate that the government cannot have a wholesale religious exclusion in a public benefit program. So we're not asking the court to step out on new ground. We're asking the court to reaffirm its existing principles. Well, that's probably true with respect to the Trinity Lutheran case and the playground there uh, where the court did say you couldn't exclude paving the playground for a, a Lutheran uh, school if you were going to do it for other schools. Uh, but in the case of Locke v. Davis, didn't they say that you could not finance somebody who was pursuing a theological degree? So isn't there, doesn't that actually point in the direction that's uh, opposite to the argument that you're making. No, in fact, Locke v. Davy confirms that we should win in this case. So what happened in Locke is that there was a state scholarship program for college students. And the state said, we will fund whatever, we'll give you a scholarship for whatever school you want to go to. You can take whatever classes you want to go to. The only thing you can't do is major in devotional theology for someone who wants to become a priest or a minister, uh, where they would be learning to lead a clergy. And the court said that even though the state could fund scholarships for those students, it didn't have to, but for four reasons. And one of those reasons was that that exclusion was very narrow, and it didn't otherwise show hostility toward religion because religion was included in the program. Uh, the plaintiff in that case, Joshua Davey, was free to go to whatever religious college he wanted to. He could take as many religious classes. He could even take as many uh, devotional theology classes. He just couldn't do one tiny thing, and that was have this major. And the court also said what made this case different was that it involved this historical state interest in not funding the clergy. And that goes back to the founding of our country. We have a very complicated relationship with 
uh, funding clergy members going back to when we were citizens of, of Britain. So that case was very, very narrow. And if you look at the case, it makes clear that if you were ha to have a wholesale religious exclusion where religion would be completely excluded from the program, that would not pass muster. Well, the case is being litigated in January, is that correct? That's right. We have, uh, I'm working on the reply brief right now. We, right now before the court is our opening brief and the government's opening brief, so we'll submit one more brief. The argument will be on January 22nd, and we expect a decision probably by late June. So how about the um, Solicitor General, who represents the United States government, is, the, is he weighing in on this case? He is. He's going to also, we're going to argue for 20 minutes, and he's going to argue for 10 minutes. He supports us in this. Well, that's always useful if you have the Solicitor General on your side. That's yes. usually a, a good thing to have. Do you have a lot of amicus briefs that uh, support the main argument as well? Yes. I, it was uh, over 40 amicus briefs were supported in our favor. I think the other side got much less. So um, I think the, the country supports us in this. Well, Erica, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I am eager to see what the Supreme Court decides in this case, uh, the topic of aid to religious schools, uh, either directly or indirectly, has been on the agenda for a long period of time. And this is really a special uh, case because it really looks at it from the point of view of the free exercise of religion instead of looking at it from the point of view of the Establishment Clause. So thank you very much for sharing this with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I've been speaking with Erica Smith, attorney at the Institute of Justice, who is the lawyer for Kendra Spinoza, whose case against the Montana Department of Revenue will be heard by the Supreme Court this term. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.